The duckfly is a large black non-biting, thank God, chironomid buzzer which lives in mud and silt for a year until it hatches and swarms in the milder weather intervals of early spring. This usually coincided with the early building trades holiday so with the lack of fishing in Scotland at this time it seemed a natural progression to go to where the fish were. It was always a chancy move as success was totally weather dependent. On one occasion after the first three days of being stormbound we lasted until the Tuesday when a look at the still deteriorating forecast to find that we packed the van and head home. But if there was even an off chance of a small weather window we found the fly and the fish ready to meet us halfway. The fly was desperate to use any opportunity to hatch, however brief, and the big trout were totally preoccupied with getting as many down as they could before it was over. We found if a hatch occurred when you were in the right place the area erupted with some monster trout cruising about and if you could get your fly in the vicinity they were certainly not shy. On the downside if the natural fly was not hatching it was hour after hour of blind drifting for not a lot. Just like sea trout fishing on Lomond really. The best places were the areas of mud and silt around river deltas. These places usually had masses of reed beds where the fish were actually in about the stems, and even if hooked were sometimes into the reeds in seconds and lost. Depth was unimportant as long as it wasn't much over about 20 feet the important thing was the sediment that held the buzzer nymphs until they made their desperate ascent to hatch. On this final journey the fish seemed to follow them up in a frenzy of feeding and seemed to suddenly find themselves on the surface by accident almost. When it happened it was awe-inspiring. I've never seen so many big trout, sometimes of salmon size, cruising about at the same time. The noise they made taking the duckfly just as it emerged was unforgettable. The duckfly when hatching was a miracle I never tired of watching. If the wind died and the temperature slightly increased as a result then from nowhere there would be a sudden burst of fly emerging. How they could tell conditions were right from 12 feet down in the mud was a mystery. Right in the surface layer there was an intense spot of bright orange as the shuck split and blood was pumped to the wings. Only a second sufficed to discard the shuck and take to the air but it turned the trout mad. There could be thousands of fly hatching within casting distance, and hundreds of trout cruising about sucking them down quietly, slashing at them fiercely, or just nonchalantly swimming with their mouths open through the chironomid soup they seemed to live in. It was so awe-inspiring that it made me breathless and pumped with adrenaline. The first two or three times I saw it left me shaking and weak at the knees. Experienced anglers turned into gibbering wrecks if they got a tangle, or if they caught each other's lines trying to cast across the boat at a rising fish. The fly hatched in patches throughout the day, making its way to the trees where it hung from the underside of leaves waiting the conditions it needed to mate and lay next year's duck fly. Landing on the shore near trees sometimes created your unlocalized hatch as you accidentally chased settled fly onto the water and the fish weren't long in taking the opportunity. Also some evenings the water was white with the wind lanes of discarded shucks of those that had already hatched during the day. In the evening if conditions mellowed, the wind dropped and the temperature rose a degree of two the fly from the trees swarmed like smoke, mating and dancing before landing on the water to lay. Sometimes a few tied themselves together and were blown in a tangle across the water and the locals called this the bawling buzzer. Hatches and rises were usually localized and of short duration. Rarely did a general rise last longer than 15 minutes and it was also rare to get more than a couple of fish each out of it. Playing and landing a three or four pound wild trout takes time and couldn't be forced. The rule on my boat was the unengaged angler kept on fishing if the other hooked a fish as the trout didn't seem bothered by the disturbance and continued to feed. Unless it was an exceptional fish you landed your own and got back in the game as soon as possible. Many times we had two anglers playing fish simultaneously during a rise desperate to get the fish landed to get fishing again. 
You tried to avoid hooking any tail pullers and wasting time. Even a fish of a pound could take minutes to net, and did a lot of damage to a three-fly cast in the process. We all had spare casts tied up for this event, and sometimes even spare rods already made up. The resident gulls went mad for the hatching fly and were a great indicator of a hatch underway. They daintily picked them individually off the surface as they burst through while hovering on the wing and made a great clamor doing it so if you were wiving hearing distance you followed the sound of gulls. All around the Doris Peninsula was acres of good duckfly water. Also right outside the house, which sat up on the hill overlooking the lock was some of the best. On calm days you could sit at the window or at the patio table watching the big rings of rising trout spread out all over. But most days we were all out from early on until dark o'clock. The only time I looked out the window was because it was blowing a gale and I couldn't get out. Not much for scenery me unless fishing's out of the question. All around the Cornamona River Delta was good ground. Gibbons Bay, the island, the massive reed beds along the shore, the individual little inlets like mini fjords, rushing, Doris Bay itself, Schoolhouse Bay, almost anywhere you drifted had potential to produce in the right conditions. The areas closer to the home jetty got greatest attention towards evening when it was most likely the wind would drop, conditions mellow and the evening rise occur. Most boats picked a local area they'd previously had fish from and waited hopefully for it to switch on. Doris Bay was a great place for big fish and big movements of fish, but its distance from home meant you had to leave just at its best to get home before complete darkness. Being able to fish the last 10 minutes of daylight was essential to success most days. Those already home, or still traveling there missed some great fishing by miscalculation of time and distance. Picking the right flies was easy. Black, red, orange and silver. If it didn't have two of the colors and silver it didn't get tied on. Favorite bob fly was the black pennel or Kate McLaren tied every way from bushy to slim. Then for the middle and tail was either teal and black, a Watson's fancy or a Peter Ross. Most boxes were stuffed with hundreds of each in sizes from 10s down to 14s. Mostly I stuck to 12s except in near pin ripples when a 14 might be tried in desperation. I had little confidence in the holding power of a 14 stuck in a 5 fulber. We all learned not to use anything but Kamasan B-175 heavy wire hooks for all our flies. The first few years were a litany of stories of lost fish or missed violent takes due to straight and fine wire normal hooks. Nylon was a personal thing. After my first year when I was broken by the first three fish I hooked in Doris Bay one night using the same nylon I'd used on the River Clyde for years I never ever used anything except Maxima Green in 8, 6 and 5 pounds BS anything less was just asking for smash takes, lost fish and lost favorite flies sometimes three at a time. In a good fishing wind fish were unconcerned by the 8 pound stuff, and it was easier to untangle fankles too. Towards evening I think everyone went to the lighter 6 and 5 pounds BS stuff to suit the lighter winds and calmer conditions. We all had our own favorite rods depending on techniques. I liked the longer rod and used a 12 feet Grays Kilder number 5 6 7 with an added 6 inches fighting butt and a Cortland 5 DT full floater. The rod was nice and soft for countering smash takes, cast a decent line downwind and still could punch well across it. The extra length made raising the bobfly easier and we mostly found takes came either on the first couple of pulls or when the bobfly broke the surface. My boat partner fished a Daiwa Altmore 11.5 feet 5 6 7 carbon rod that was an even better tool. A slightly stiffer rod, but a much better caster, lighter and a better looker but with a silly we fixed 2 inches bubble butt extension which I personally disliked. We all found that hard ground wasn't worth the time fishing. 
It held smaller fish but few bigger which all seemed concentrated on the duckfly hatches. Later on when the olive or mayfly was up these areas came into their own but we seldom fished them otherwise. Hard ground was also dangerous and a big wind with rocks the size of houses appearing just under the surface waiting for the foolhardy or unlucky. We tended to learn intimately the bits we wanted to fish so we knew exactly how to get there and back in a gale or in the dark without ending up with a rock through the boat. But everybody had their experiences of grounding on the drift or while motoring. Everything was geared to finding the bigger fish feeding exclusively on duckfly. I don't remember catching many fish under our self-imposed size limit. But most of us caught a number of fish of a size that if caught in Scotland would be the fish of a lifetime. Fish from 3 to 4 pounds were fairly common and most good days there were at least 4 or 5 of this size taken between the boats. From 4 to 5 pounds were fairly regularly landed. Again most good fishing days had 1 or 2 of this size. Above this size were a bit rarer. We did catch the occasional out-of-condition fish that had spawned the previous year and was still recovering, but the vast percentage were non-spawners, locals maintained they didn't spawn every year, and these fish were in prime condition. Generally a four looked exactly the same as a toolbar, but just scaled up. If caught and kept they had to be cleaned immediately as the stomach was full of duckfly which fermented and soon spoiled the flesh. Above five pounds the fish started to change, not in shape but in cosmetic appearance. They still were obviously fly feeders and not cannibalistic ferox but their patterning changed, and they developed larger wider space dark brown spots. We called them leopards, albeit mini leopards when judged beside some of the larger fish caught on deep trolls. In all the years we fished I never saw a fish I would say was a ferox type and we saw plenty up to double figures. Locals fished the duckfly too but very few spent full days out at this time. Most came down for a few hours at evening if the conditions suited but mostly we had the place pretty much to ourselves each day. I think they thought we were mad, going out in near gales, fishing like maniacs all day, not back until after dark, straight to the pub and up next day early to do the same again. There were still a few locals specializing in trolling the bricking, the natural minnow, using he traditional clinker built 10 feet single man rowing punt. More like a canoe than a boat they had about 8 inches of freeboard, were about 2 feet wide at the widest and had no engine. They were rowed by the single occupant with one single piece hazel rod out either side with fixed line tied to the tip, and a minnow on a spinning mount. If a big fish took the rod went over the side and the fish towed it about until it tired when the rod was retrieved and the fish landed. I never tried to punt myself but the locals could row all day at a steady slow speed and I watched them out in some wild days. At the same time we were there Bob F. also came for a week to try for the big boys by deep trolling. We met him regularly in the pub where he showed us photos of fish into the teens of pounds, all leopards had taken on lures fished in up to 60 feet of water. He was specifically set up for this with a sounder, downriggers, brought his own specially kitted out boat and was out at first light and dusk which were the most productive times. I never tried trolling Korob as I knew I was going back to Lomond and would be sick of trolling soon enough without scunnering myself before March was out. My most memorable escapade was one morning when we had been out early having seen the conditions were favorable from the window overlooking the lock. Two other boats also did the same, and intended a couple of hours fishing then back in time for some breakfast with the rest before heading for areas further afield in the afternoon. We fished the island and river mouth for about an hour without any action and only the odd fish moving. Conditions were good and we'd learned to take advantage of this as there were many other days when conditions were not. The wind that been been just about perfect for steady drifting started to drop with stretches of glassy calm appearing. 
My boat partner had decided he'd had enough and had laid his rod aside and was eyeing the house and breakfast. I had decided I'd fish out the last of the breeze and then give it best. And then just at the junction of the calm and breeze a big fish rose, just outside normal cast range. I stood up, pulled a couple of extra yards off and laid as long a line as I could out, still a yard or two short. One slow pull and it was on and off on its way sideways at speed. I indicated I'd hooked a big fish and my mate got the net ready. He also had the video camera and got it out. The fish was landed, the hooks removed and the cast unfankled and straightened. It was over three and three-quarter pounds and a butterball. Then we heard another slurp close by. I unhooked the tail fly, lengthened line and covered it. Same again, on the first cast, and in once under four pounds this time. By now my mate had decided to fish and we both were back throwing long lines waiting for another rise. Ten minutes later we were still waiting and he'd reeled in again. I was just again fishing out the last of the breeze in an almost flat calm when I had the third take, blind and without previous indication. Played out in a flat calm it was the largest at four and a quarter. One of the other boats had one fish of I think four and a half and has seen nothing else. That couple of hours gave up four fish averaging over four pounds, and when we got back in the house was buzzing and couldn't get out fast enough. Everyone who went had their chances like that at some time and all could probably relate similar experiences. On our first ever trip we stayed in a house on the shore at Outerard which had its own boats and jetty. It was a particularly wild week and on a couple of days the owner was reluctant to let us go out. We convinced him we were all experienced Loman boat owners and handlers and knew what we were doing and he relented. As usual I was one of the last in and the owner was waiting on the jetty watching us all return. He said he had never seen such disregard of the conditions and couldn't believe we were so unconcerned. He thought we would have been the only boats out that day and certainly could handle a boat and from then on was a bit less anxious about giving us free rein. That night the boats, complete with engines, were all tied up securely to the jetty, normally in sheltered water. The following morning we arrived ready to go out to find one sunk and another well down in the water. The wind had changed overnight and the resultant waves had crashed over the jetty, filling and sinking one boat with spray and half-filling another. Luckily they were Tupperware and had inbuilt buoyancy chambers so although the boat was awash to the gunnels with the gear floating inside the engine powerhead was still above the waves. But we'd already decided that Outerard wasn't for us and had prospected as far as the head of the lock at Cornamona River. From memory it was Rab and Frank that first fished Doris and the Cornamona River mouth both a good five miles run minimum from Outerard. The whole place is wild and dangerous if you don't keep your eyes open and know what you're doing. Clattering along out in the deeps, or so they thought, at three-quarters throttle there was a surprise awaiting one boat. It ran aground at full tilt and a good wave and the surprise caused the driver to delay in the shutting down of the power. Eventually they passed over the shallow but didn't seem to be making much headway. Not surprising as inspection showed all that was left of a three-bladed propeller was three stubs in the central hub. They were still a distance from home and came in late in the dark with the engine running full tilt, the hub spinning at a million revs. A second, and the other man rowing. Remarkably, a visit to the garage at Kong found he had an identical engine he was breaking for spares, and the spare propeller changed hands for a reasonable fee. On a warm and calm day of little wind Davy and Gus decided to go ashore and have a brew. They found the makings of a fire and to start it gave it a liberal dosing of petrol. We were being fly we thought and stayed afloat drifting and fishing avoiding the exercise with the intention of joining them only after the kettle was boiling. But for some reason after the petrol dosing the matches couldn't be found. 
After a few minutes of blaming each other for the delay Gus found his lighter and crouched over the fire to spark it. There was a dull whoosh, a billow of fire and both of them staggered back amidst a rake of burning newspaper, smoked and expletives. And believe me, as an ex-merchant seaman Gus knew how to curse. The fire had been built in a small depression, a dip in the ground really, for shelter. The delay in hot sun had caused the petrol to evaporate and fumes to disperse to fill the hollow and by the time the lighter was sparked it was an explosive situation. I can still see both of them throwing themselves backwards, eyebrows, hair and beard singed, Gus's newspaper alight and pages drifting in the air. Tufts of dried grass smoldered all around, and it was just luck that the spare petrol can was out with the area of carnage. And then came the apportionment of blame that could be heard three miles away. Our boat was in stitches for hours after, but we decided against joining them for a brew and made off somewhere quieter. We had a few scares with the security situation over the years, but no casualties. Once traveling home through Belfast on a motorway through the city reminiscent of the M8 through Glasgow with a quickly loaded van, and slightly behind schedule we thought we had been shot at. Hammering down the three-lane tarmac at over 60 miles per hour suddenly there was a loud crack and one of the rear side windows turned to glass powder. Everyone threw themselves flat and the driver raced to put some distance between the sniper and us. We didn't stop until we cleared the city, having congratulated ourselves on avoiding casualties. We were searching the van for bullet damage and wondering if the insurance would cover it when someone noticed a metal fitting from an engine was hanging out where the glass should have been. No bullet hole was found and eventually we realized the metal fitting was supporting the full weight of an engine against the window and the pressure eventually had been too much for the glass. Again on the journey out one year, just north of the border at Enniskillen we were tramping on in the early hours of the morning, only the driver and navigator awake and sober, when we rounded a corner and two edgets with guns were standing in the middle of the road waving us down with torches. But they hadn't reckoned with a fully loaded transit with tons of gear, ten bodies and numerous engines. We just couldn't stop in the space available and sailed on brakes locked forcing the two bandits to jump for safety. When we eventually got stopped they ran up to the driver's window and one squatty who couldn't have been much out of his teens calmly laid the barrel of his 9mm Sten submachine gun on the window ledge. He'd noticed the multiple plastic rod tubes bound onto the roof rack and obviously thought we were the IRA's Paisley Active Service Mobile Rocket Unit. His next words were chilling. He invited the driver to drive forward 10 yards so he was in the killing zone. There was obviously a set ambush point covered by hidden automatic weapons with a few itchy fingers on triggers I'm sure. Luckily our accents were recognized and after explanations about our impersonating a mobile mortar battery we were waved on. We didn't get stopped again because they'd obviously radioed ahead to warn their mates about the coming invasion. I recently dug out my boxes of duckfly patterns after an invitation to a friend's small trout lock. He filled my head with stories of 8 or 10 fish a day backed up with a few photos so I thought I'd give it a try. I hadn't fished for trout since my last corb trip a dozen years ago. I arrived with my 12 feet Grace Kielder, my full floater, 5 pounds green maxima and 3 fly cast just like the old days. I put a black pennel on the bob, teal and black on the middle and a Peter Ross on the tail, all size 12s. We set out in the boat and at the end of the day I'd risen about 30 fish and landed over 15 up to just over 2 pounds all taken on the surface and most on the Peter Ross. It was the first time I'd opened the Corp Dubfly box for years, and but for the C-19 we planned a return match this season. It was a bit easier than Corb, and a good bit more relaxed, but welcome just the same. Corb, like all the big western lakes are free fishing. 
There was an attempt years ago by the fisheries board prompted by the government at the time to introduce a license, but all the locals realized this was the thin end of the wedge and established the government's until then untested and contested right of authority. A strike was organized of all boat hirers, angling guides, accommodation and anything fishing related. This part of the country relies totally for its income on the fishing and it hit everyone involved hard. Boats were removed for the season and turned over. Bookings were cancelled. Guest houses and hotels shut completely and the dispute lasted over a year. Any local who didn't remain solid and did decide to break the strike was ostracized and probably still hasn't been forgiven. There was a lot of bad feeling and recriminations. But the strikers held out and eventually the license proposal was withdrawn. It was the Irish equivalent of the miners' strike but this time the good guys won. We had people there at the time fishing for the week and midway they were told the boats were coming out and there would be no more fishing if they knew what was good for them. They helped take the boats out and turn them over until the disputed was over. Their week was over and they were home by Wednesday. Of the original 10 Bamaha pilgrims there has been a few changes. We were all of an age, within two or three years, and were all in our mid-thirties when we started and felt immortal. The intervening 30-odd years have decimated the group, with some faring better than others. Only five of us are still fishing regularly at Bamaha. Of the rest one has passed on, one has given up all fishing due to ill health, two have deserted Bamaha and Loman due to the desperate drop in catches, and one moved permanently to Ireland 20 years ago and still lives and fishes there, including occasionally on Corrib. Despite changes over the years I'm certain what we learned, where we fished in the flies, techniques and tactics would still produce results. I couldn't do a straight week now, day after 14-hour day, as we used to. But a long weekend with a couple of days fishing would give the duck fly box an airing and maybe the leopards are still cruising in Doris around the deep hole at the wee island.